This is Macro Horizons, episode 180, Reassessing Recession, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of July 18th. And for anyone who has yet to hear about the Institutional Investor Survey, congratulations. We now know who should receive the best email filter award. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the Treasury market received what is arguably the most important single data point, and that was CPI. In this case, it was headline CPI, which came in higher than expected at 1.3% month over month in June, and that brought the yearly pace up to 9.1%. That's the highest since 1981. For context, 10-year yields remain comfortably below 3%, and the front end of the market continues to sell off as investors debate how the Fed will ultimately respond to this elevated degree of inflation. Our baseline assumption at this point remains that we will see a 75 basis point rate hike at the July 27th meeting. Now, there is a non-zero probability of a 100 basis point rate hike, but following comments from monetary policymakers on Thursday and Friday, as well as the surprise decline in the University of Michigan's 5 to 10 year inflation survey response, which was 2.8%, down from 3.1 in June, which was revised after initially printing at 3.3%, it follows intuitively that the Fed's preferred survey measure of inflation expectations has revealed the type of moderation of forward inflation expectations that should all else being equal air the Fed on the side of 75 as opposed to 100. Now, in the upcoming week, there's very little economic data aside from some reads on housing that could potentially skew the probability for the Fed to be more aggressive. But that's not our base case scenario at this point. Moreover, as we think about the impact of the slightly stronger than expected retail sales numbers on the Fed, It does bolster the case for two 75 basis point hikes, one in July and one in September, even if we don't ultimately see 100 basis points at the end of this month. The week just passed also saw an impressive inversion of the twos, tens yield curve. This benchmark spread dropped as low as negative 27 basis points, effectively marking the extremes this curve has seen since the 2000 cycle. So with the curve as inverted as it's been in more than 20 years, 
investors are continuing to ponder how far this spread might ultimately push. Historically, we've seen it as low as negative 55 basis points, and between now and the end of the year, we're targeting a retesting of the range of negative 40 to negative 55 basis points. This will come in an environment where the Fed is pushing forward with rate hikes and whether the terminal rate is ultimately a range of 325 to 350 or 350 to 375 remains to be seen, but that doesn't mean that two-year yields can't trade below effective Fed funds. And that's precisely what we are anticipating. And so we're continuing to hold our year-end call for two-year yields at 2.9% and 10-year yields at 225 and the implied 40 basis points of inversion in twos tens. Now, when we think about the cyclical steepener, that will occur sometime in 2023, all else being equal, and be triggered by either fine-tuning cuts by the Fed or a more material de-risking as the labor market comes under pressure and investors operate under the assumption that the longer it takes the Fed to deliver the first rate cut of the next cycle, the larger that cut will ultimately have to be. Well, Ian, we got CPI with a nine-handle. We got 530s back to inversion, a surprise 100 basis point rate hike from the Bank of Canada, chatter about 100 basis points from the Fed, and then pushback, maybe 75? Maybe 100. Maybe 50. Not 50. Could be 75, though. Or maybe 100. That was the tone of the Treasury market during the last two days of the week following the higher-than-expected headline and core CPI print. CPI came in decidedly above expectations, both for the headline and the core. And this triggered chatter for the prospects for the Fed to up the proverbial ante with a 100 basis point rate hike instead of 75. Now, we're certainly sympathetic to this debate, particularly given what happened after the May CPI data, i.e. the Fed went from signaling 50 basis points was a given to putting 75 basis points on the table using the financial media during the Fed's radio silent period. So the fact that we have had several Fed speakers since the CPI release should have given the market, ideally, a better sense of precisely what the Fed was thinking. Instead, we were left with dueling Fed commentary regarding the prospects of whether or not we should assume 75 versus 100 basis points. And as a net result, this debate will likely continue until the Fed meets on the 27th of July. And in terms of the market reaction to both the CPI data itself and also the rhetoric from Waller, Bostick, Bullard around the question of 75 or 100 basis points, the two most telling reactions was first, twos tens reaching negative 27 basis points for its most inverted level since 2000. But also, despite 9.1% headline CPI, after the knee-jerk sell-off in tens, we actually saw 10-year rates close net lower on the day on Wednesday, speaking to this idea that we've reached the point in the cycle and recession fears have become pronounced enough that the level at which dip-buying interest is going to start to emerge to take advantage of backups and yields has been lowered. 
a sell-off that stalls out below 310 10-year yields really diminishes the prospect for another re-challenge of that 3.497 level that we got to in early June. And this, of course, is in no small part due to the fact that recessionary worries have picked up in a very significant way. And even if the economy was in a recession in the first half of this year, the fact that the labor market remains so tight means that the Fed is going to continue hiking, potentially by even more than 75 basis points. It's also not lost on us the timing of the FOMC meeting versus the second quarter real GDP numbers. On Wednesday, July 27th, the Fed will announce whether they're going 75 or 100 basis points. And the next day at 8.30 in the morning, investors will get the first look at the second quarter GDP numbers. Now, we've made the point in the past, and it remains relevant, that for the same amount of nominal GDP, the more inflation that there is in the system, the higher the probability that growth dips into negative territory. And following Bullard's comments that perhaps the real GDP numbers are not accurately illustrating what's going on in the U.S. economy, monetary policymakers seem to be acknowledging the fact that underlying growth might be solid, but higher prices are weighing on real spending power, and that could ultimately flow through to the economic data. And on the issue of spending, we did get June's retail sales figures that, yes, surprised on the upside, and maybe some of that edge was taken off by downward revisions to May's figures. But in real terms, even an eight-tenth of a percent increase in the control group is more than erased by the monthly gains in CPIs. So in practical terms, this means that the optical increase of dollars spent in retail sales is more than entirely accounted for by inflation. Clearly, there's no shortage of reasons for consumers not to be particularly confident or particularly strong spenders in the current environment. Think about gas, food prices, what's becoming an increasingly cloudy outlook for the labor market. All of these factors do not bode well for an acceleration in growth from a departure point in the first quarter that was still negative in real terms. And I do think that it is relevant that in the breakdown of the retail sales numbers, what we saw was an emphasis on necessity spending. We know that gasoline prices and food prices have continued to increase, and so it does follow intuitively that that is taking up more of the consumer wallet share as the cycle moves forward. Now, the lingering question still remains, how long before the increase in initial jobless claims begins to shift the narrative around how healthy the labor market actually is at this stage? Recall that employment is a notoriously lagging economic indicator. Given the cycle time of hiring, it takes quarters before we would actually expect to see a material change in the unemployment rate. And Ben, to your point, if the Fed is going to be willing to hike even if we're in a technical recession, the Fed will be willing to hike even if the unemployment rate is trending higher, if for no other reason than they have repeatedly stated that the employment market is running hot, and by offsetting some of the pressure, they can take the upside risk off of wages. And that will further help prevent a wage inflation spiral. But that's only going to be true up until a point. And unfortunately, as with so many things in the real economy, we probably won't realize that point until well after we've passed it. Yes, the Fed wants to see a gradual and probably relatively modest increase in the unemployment rate. However, once we start to see that increase, presumably we'll have yet to see the full impact of all of the Fed's tightening. 
and that will mean that once the comfort point is reached, the lagged influence of monetary policy will continue to serve as an economic headwind beyond what would be the ideal outcome from the Fed's perspective. In fact, in his comments on Thursday, Waller went as far as to cite explicitly this in his laying out a 75 basis point hike as a base case. He said that it's important not to overdo it on rate hikes and that while, yes, the Fed needs to move aggressively to contain inflation, a 75 basis point hike is still a huge move in the context of the last 40 years and the risk of overdoing it is an important bullet point in the argument against 100 basis points. And looking at the tips market, what we can see is that break-evens have demonstrated an increasing amount of confidence in the Fed's ability to keep forward inflation expectations anchored. Now, this is relevant as the Fed continues to reinforce their commitment to a 2% inflation target. The most compelling argument against our year-end target for 10-year yields at 2.5% is a scenario in which the U.S. economy is entering a phase where year-over-year inflation is trending higher than it has been for the last decade. So instead of 2%, envision a world in which inflation runs closer to 35 or 4%. In such an environment, investors would need more inflation compensation to go further out the curve into 10s and 30s. But what we have seen from the Fed, even in their decision to go from 50 to 75 basis point rate hikes, to say nothing of the fact that a 100 basis point move should conceptually be on the table, is that the Fed is willing to do whatever it takes to combat inflation. And by maintaining that 2% target combined with increased hawkishness, break-evens will continue to drift lower. If nothing else, this test of the Fed's credibility as an inflation fighter seems to be breaking in Powell's favor. There's also a component of this front-loading hikes dynamic that came up in conversation several times with clients this week and is something that's actually reflected in the shape of the Fed Fund's futures curve, which is that if we're going to get to last cycle's terminal rate or maybe even beyond by the end of this month, does that mean we're necessarily going to see a higher finish line for this hiking cycle or do the larger hikes just mean we're getting to the same finish line that would have ultimately been the case anyway, just much faster than was previously assumed? So 75 basis point rate hikes don't necessarily mean that the terminal Fed funds rate is going to be north of 3%, but it does mean that we will get to wherever terminal ultimately ends up being far more quickly and then the Fed will then be able to shift to an on-hold stance to allow some of this tightening to price out. In terms of Fed funds futures pricing, we have terminal priced to 360 more or less sometime in the first half of the year. But beyond that, and very much keeping with historical precedent, we're starting to see an increasing amount of rate cuts priced in by the end of 2023. We know that the Fed usually can't keep policy at terminal for more than six, nine, maybe 12 months. And given the condensed timeline on which rates have been moving up, it's certainly not unreasonable to bias that terminal hold period shorter as well. This is definitely going to be a communications challenge for Powell at the July meeting, yes, but also the remaining meetings over this year and into early next. This quicker up and quicker down on Fed funds narrative plays into why we have seen the two-year Treasury note comfortably yielding below the terminal funds expectation. The notion, as you point out, Ben, is that while the Fed might be in a hurry to get to terminal, they won't be able to keep rates there for very long. Not only has this combined with the recession chatter 
contributed to the depths of the inversion in the yield curve, but it also reinforces our core call that we're going to struggle to see three handles in the treasury market by year end. In contemplating the potential depths of the inversion, we think it's reasonable to target a negative 40 to negative 55 basis point range in twos tens between now and the end of the year. Part of that will be simply a function of pricing in a slower growth outlook. Recessionary or not, it goes without saying that expectations are for far more significant economic headwinds in the second half of the year. The other aspect of our contained rates bias comes in the form of Fed credibility. As we mentioned earlier, break-evens are trending lower, and the more convinced the market becomes of the Fed's reaction function to higher inflation, the more we will expect break-evens to compress. Do we get 10-year break-evens back into the 175 range by the end of the year? That's ultimately going to come down to how CPI performs. And along with break-evens, we've seen the Fed give a fair amount of weight to some survey-based measures of inflation expectations as well. Now, the realities of how those softer metrics are collected really gives gas prices a more outsized impact than probably should be warranted. And the fact that we've seen crude, RBOB, and frankly, commodities on the whole start to pull back from their peaks on some of these recessionary concerns also adds to the moderating inflation case over the second half of this year. Now, moderating from such elevated levels means that the Fed will continue to move aggressively. But as the committee presumably becomes more concerned about a slowdown, pointing to progress in fighting inflation, especially on the core side, will presumably give some cover for the Fed to downshift from 75 basis points to 50 basis points or even back to the now decidedly out of style 25 basis point hike. I miss the quarter point hikes. I miss quarter telephone calls. I miss quarter loaf bread. Was that actually a thing? Right after quarter a gallon gas. That's quarter of a dollar, not quarter of a 20. In the week ahead, the treasury market has remarkably little in terms of economic data with which to contend. We do have a few housing measures, housing starts and building permits on Tuesday, as well as existing home sales on Wednesday. Our expectations are for a continued cooling in the residential housing market. This is consistent with the obvious outcome from a tighter monetary policy environment as well as the run-up in mortgage rates that was seen during the second quarter. The week ahead also sees supply in the terms of a $14 billion 20-year auction, admittedly a point on the yield curve that has certainly struggled in the secondary market versus the longer duration 30-year as that curve continues to be inverted. We also have Thursday's new 10-year tips auction of $17 billion. This will be a meaningful litmus test of investors' demand for inflation protection in an environment where the Fed has stepped up their aggressiveness in fighting inflation while at the same time, headline CPI continues to print higher than expected. On net, we expect a reasonable showing for tips, with the caveat that we are at an important inflection point in the cycle where the increasing probability that the U.S. faces a recession in the next 12 months will serve to further anchor inflation expectations. We anticipate that the market will continue to refine expectations for the July 27th FOMC meeting. 
the debate between 75 basis points versus 100 basis points is currently skewed in favor of 75 basis points. And while upside surprises on the economic data could skew expectations higher, at the end of the day, we anticipate that the Fed, assuming that 100 basis points is not fully priced in, will err in favor of 75 basis points. However, we do expect that the press conference will be skewed more hawkishly as Powell ultimately leaves another 75 basis point move on the table for the September meeting. Needless to say, the traditional summer doldrums period is approaching. However, given where we are in the monetary policy cycle and the depths of the inversion in the two tens curve, to say nothing of the flattening further out, we're not expecting a typical low commitment, low volatility period between now and Labor Day. In fact, it's reasonable to anticipate that the tone and the trajectory of U.S. rates for the balance of the year will be decided in the next eight weeks. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with CPI running at levels not seen since the early 80s, we cannot help but be nostalgic for Atari, Parachute Pants, and of course, the Oregon Trail. Died of dysentery. Again. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. 
BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.